0: it's just a weight off seeing actual customers in front of you. I remember that, yeah, when we reopened the first time, it's, you know, just lots of different stories, lots of, you know, how grateful customers are to be back into a restaurant situation and enjoying themselves. And, um, it really makes you, wonder, you know, understand how vital sort of the restaurants and hospitality in general are for you know, the common good. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast.
1: I'm Anthony Huckstep. The indiscriminate nature of the pandemic meant ego, reputation and influence meant nothing. It put everyone in the restaurant industry on a nice edge, but the resilience of the industry as a whole has been incredibly inspiring. With Melbourne finally allowed to begin trading like other Australian cities, what does the future hold for the culinary capital of Australia. Frank Mora is the owner of Mavita Restaurants, a group that changed dining, not only in Melbourne, but Australia too. Frank, how are you? Good, Anthony, how are you? I'm good. You finally got a date um, set that you can open the doors and welcome people in. How did it feel when you got that news?
0: Um, well, I mean, it was almost a little bit surprising to be honest, because um, you know, it wasn't, you know, in stone that we were going to be able to open before there were, um, you know, zero cases. So um, yeah, we were hoping we were going to get a similar sort of result that the regional parts of Victoria did, and it um, looks like we're going in that direction, which, um, yeah, makes us all feel like a lot more confident, especially, you know, with these sort of numbers, or COVID numbers that are here now. Was, well I feel more confident about opening and not, um, not fearing that we're going to be closed down again. What sort of impact has this period of time had?
1: It's been such a long time for Melbourne operators to deal with this sort of alternate reality. Has it, has it taken a toll on on you and the business?
0: Uh, yeah, I think. I mean, I think it'd be silly to say it hasn't taken a toll out of, of uh, everybody. I'd say because um, you know I was actually speaking to the guys before. I'd almost lost track of how long we've been closed for, but it's it's you know been well over a hundred days in this second closure, so over three months. Wow. Yeah, we opened for just under a month. And, you know, there's obviously almost two months prior to that. So the majority of this year we were, um, you know, we've been closed or closed as far as our normal operations go. And we've had to sort of do things a little bit differently, but also, you know, deal with frustrations from, you know, staff, customers, suppliers, ourselves, and um, trying to... uh, make the best of a shit situation, basically. What's it like
1: at the moment trying to plan for a a reopening? Um, How are you feeling about getting all of the wheels in motion again?
0: Um, It's still a little bit confusing, to be honest. So um, there's sort of still some mixed messages. There's no concrete rules that have come out um, from the state government. So we're still trying to sort of navigate that. Uh, But, you know, we're making assumptions that, you know, we are going to be allowed to have 20 people inside. We are going to have some outside dining. Um, and and the, the beauty of that is that we, we have worked under those conditions before in the in the first opening. Um, so we know already what works as far as how do we structure a roster, how do we structure a menu, um, how do we structure our reservations. So we're, we're ready as far as that's concerned because we've had a bit of practice <laughs> the first time around. Um, but it's really whether, whether there's going to be changes... Um, you know, when we reopen, um, you know, are we... I'm assuming we'll be wearing masks. Um, will the same density rules apply? Um, you know, what size tables are the maximum size tables? All that sort of stuff. All the finer details still to be sorted out. What sort of version of Mavita and the restaurants
1: that you have will, will we see in that sort of initial stage? Will it be quite different to what we're used to?
0: It's... Uh, well... Movita, I think we, we want to stick to our guns. Um, th- there is rumours that there may not be shared food allowed, which seems kind of a bit strange to me, so a bit foreign, because, I mean, when you really think about, you know, shared food, it's obviously tapas, but it's also pizza, it's also Chinese food, it's also Indian food. It's like every cuisine in the world except for, you know, Anglo and French food, really. So, so really, I mean, what... You know, majority, you know, 90% of the restaurants in Melbourne have some form of shared eating, you know, and it's not just tapas. So so that that's the one thing that we really need to sort of have um, worked out for us. But if, if hopefully shared food still allowed to happen, then um, I think we're going to do very much what we were doing before, and uh, I think that's what customers expect. them the same style. The only thing is the density um, restrictions really... Res- restrict the atmosphere of a restaurant and I think that's kind of the essence of a place. I mean, when you go out for dining, it's obviously about the food, it's obviously about the service, but it's more than anything about an experience and, you know, and I think that experience um, is about the other customers, about the, the vibe of the place, the noise and the, you know, and the laughter and, and I felt, you know, in that first opening that, yeah, the restaurants lacked that, there wasn't the atmosphere and um, the vibrancy of a normal Movita experience. During this time,
1: what sort of uh, initiatives did you put in place to get money coming through the door? Was was the offering quite different to what you would normally have in the restaurants?
0: Oh uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've we've gone through such a range of different things that we've been doing. Um, so initially, when the closures came, um, we decided to do a little bit of takeaway from Movida next door, and also operate that as a as a you know, grocery store. So Movida, uh, Movida products and other products. Um, we import you know wine, we import food from Spain. Plus, obviously, we have some amazing connections with suppliers. So we thought we'd set that up specifically so people could drop by and buy things, and also some ready-made meals ready to go. And it, you know, it it bombed badly, and um, uh, reason being is because the CBD just overnight just um, became a ghost town. So there was nobody there to buy the stuff. And and my initial thoughts was maybe it's actually not worth um, doing takeaway. Uh, it was actually staff that started sort of asking you know, for something to do a couple of weeks into just being fully closed. They started coming to me and going, look, we we need something to do. Can we try doing some takeaway? Um so we came up with the concept, which was uh, menu there there, which is the menu of the day. If anyone's been to Spain, like when you go to you know, a little, um, well, a, a typical Spanish bar restaurant will have, you know, a workers or white collar and blue collar style lunch. that's really well priced. It's three courses. Um, it's comfort food, but it's um, delicious and and classic sort of Spanish dishes, and it's really inexpensive. And we thought that would be the sort of model maybe to produce for people to have at home. So we just thought we'd do, um, you know, things that are accessible price-wise, but also, um, you know, uh, food-wise and do it all ourselves, uh, which meant, you know, producing the food, delivering the food. Our front of house guys are awesome. They were, you know, along with delivering food, they are also painting the restaurants and sanding back the bars and, and uh, doing whatever was required. And um, and then uh, we opened up, so we stopped doing that. And then the second closure, which, you know, came as a massive surprise to everyone here, really, because we, we were really seeing, you know, some light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we were seeing, you know, the opportunity to open up for 50 people and, you know, and we were making plans for that. And then all of a sudden the rug got pulled out of us and, you um, so we, we, made, we brought back the menu there. the year. The, uh, we also started doing um, uh, comida, corrida, which is um, a Mexican term for the same style of, of food. They have like a fast and accessible lunch menu, um, and that was to basically support our international chefs, which at that stage, you know, all of a sudden were <laughs> getting um, shifts again, but they got pulled out, so we thought we'd... Um, chefs and front of house, would we'd just allocate them that that job and get their salary done for that and and that worked really well as well um and it was basically one of our young chefs whose mexican background um that was working as a sous chef in lawn for us and she um and she ran that uh, and on top of that we also started using a platform called provador which has been really successful and um um and has been going really well um again yeah um food delivered but by a logistics company rather than us and it's more like um food that somebody has to finish off at home so it's not completely cooked and perhaps you know, several different components say for instance like a pey it's got the rice the stock the sofrito the, the seafood and you make that together at home. Were there challenges in putting together that sort of menu? Uh, it was because you know it's not something we're really um, oh look I guess as a chef you don't really sort of consider ever how you would you know represent your food well in the home environment because I mean we never ever would have considered doing Uber, not only because the commissions are so high, but also how does that food translate carried by somebody to, you know to their home where you don't have control of that. Um, so um, yeah, it was come up with a new concept of okay, how do we create the components that so people can do it? You know, not too difficult, but get as close to the product that they would um, at the restaurant at home. Um, so it took a bit of trial and error, even with the, say for instance the payer is all about, you know, finding a foolproof, idiot-proof recipe, which, uh, you know, is <laughs> not that. Easy. Look, I actually got a complaint actually with our, um, our beef cheeks the other day, which was quite funny because so we do a beef cheek with Pedro Jimenez reduction and a and cauliflower puree, and we sort of cook the beef cheeks overnight in yeah in PX and Pedro Jimenez, and we got a massive complaint. Four people said, oh yeah the, the beef cheeks were completely burnt and um, you know it doesn't make zero sense because they they never see like open flame unless you've done it at home they've been covered in liquid so so it's always going to be issues but <laughs> we try and make it as easy as we can yeah you've also yeah.
1: done um, collaborations i know you did something a bit left field with um sandra from picolina
0: yeah um so sandra contacted us out of the blue and asked you know i mean i buy her uh ice cream on uber eats plenty of times from from um for the kids and us at home but um yeah it just seemed like a good good concept so um i mean she's she's amazing like she's continuing to open restaurants uh well not restaurants but um uh ice cream shops in the cbd currently like she's fitting out two new places and has a third on the way which um you know is is amazing um positivity (laughs) i'm not, not sure if i'd be that keen to open new places right now but um but yeah, she's um she was great to work with. We'd you know we sold what like five hundred boxes, so we'd do the savory, we'd we collaborated on the um on the ice creams and um yeah, it was really uh really successful, which was good. Yeah. How do you feel about
1: the future of the, the industry at the moment given the year that the Melbourne
0: industry's just had? Um Look, it's it's hard to know what is going to happen. And I'm, not, I'm not 100% pessimistic and 100% optimistic. And you know, my philosophy has always been is you know, you can control what's directly in front of you, and you know, and make decisions that can influence that as best your ability can provide. So, um, you know, I love to have a crystal ball and, and know what's going to happen. But I mean, looking back over the industry, say 2019, that was a tough year. I think generally in, in um, in restaurants in Melbourne um, and, you know, I think my colleagues um, have all said it was a difficult year and this certainly wasn't expected, 20 was expected to be difficult, but n- nothing like this. But um, with that, I mean, we, like you said at the start, we are resilient. Um, we do, you know, get on with it, whether it's in a service or within, you know, our businesses in general. And um, I think most of us are going to find ways to, to get through it, but I do fear you know, there are going to be lots of different closures of restaurants and there already have been, um, and, you know, people that operate amazing businesses that, you know, just through no fault of their own and the position everyone's in um, are going to find it difficult. And I think the difficulty is not going to be necessarily this next few months, but I think next year, um, you know, as uh, government subsidies decrease and, and removed and... Um, as people find the reality of their economic situation, I think that's when, you know, um, when restaurants will probably suffer a little bit more than they even have currently. I don't think it's an understatement
1: to say that you changed the conversation for Spanish cuisine in Australia. Uh, you were born in Barcelona and grew up in Australia. What's, what's the similarities there? And, what, you know, tell us about Spanish cuisine from your perspective.
0: Um, I guess uh, you know for me like what we tried to translate um, from Spain to Australia um, seemed very natural. I guess you know what, what we created was um, a, the bar as the, the centerpiece and the, and the core of a restaurant. So a bar and a commodore, which is a dining room I guess that's that's essentially what a Spanish restaurant is. So if you, you know, if you think maybe like a classic French restaurant is, is a bistro, a classic Italian restaurant is, a trattoria, for instance, um, that whole f- feeling of you can sit at the bar and eat, and not feel like you just have to drink, or vice versa, or can have a drink and not eat. Uh, that flexibility, that sense of theatre, the sense of vibrancy, the um, sense of flexibility, um, and the you know the customer decides how they want to treat that space and how they want to use it. I think really translates well to Australia, and I think also the fact that the location that we're in um, in the CBD of Melbourne was a big part of the success of Movido. Not only, you know, the laneway feels like you might be in Barcelona, you might be walking down somewhere, you know, in the Barrio Gótico, but the fact that, you know, there's a theatre right next door, there's a Forum Theatre, there's a gallery across the road, um, you know, there's Acme across the road from that, there's, there's lots of residents, there's lots of offices, so it's a real mixed-use entertainment fun. It's, it's a vibrant sort of city, um, you know, and even the laneway itself, which is, you know, wasn't one, it were, not right now, but it was one of the most visited um, locations in Australia, um, Hosea Lane, just for the graffiti. So, um, you know, it, it just, it felt right to have that style of restaurant where you could just pop in and pop out um, and you could come in certainly and have, you know, a long lunch or, or um, you know, meet friends for a special dinner, but also you could just pop in for a glass of wine, a glass of sherry and a small topper and then pop out and use it how you felt.
1: What was food like for you when you were a
0: kid? Awesome. Loved it. That's why I'm a chef, to be honest. So <laughs> that, that really <laughs> Yeah, grew up with um you know well, why I came out here when I was five and mum and dad always always loved food, but I guess when they first came out here they never really you know, they never knew how to make their Own humorn, or they never knew how to cure their own olives, but or make chorizo because they'd you know have access to that in Spain and just buy it at the shop. But here, they um, you know, there was a small um community we grew up, I actually grew up in Geelong. Um, and you know, one person might know how you make your chorizo, one person knew how to make olives. So every week, we'd be doing something. Uh, we used to go out and get you know our own clams, we used to go and get some um, velvet crabs. We used to go and catch snails. So I remember springtime rains. They was like, "Oh, cool! Let's go! Let's go grab snails and and you know, collect them and bring them back home and purge them." And then we used to do one of my most favourite dishes. I still like probably my most favourite dish in the world. If you go to Cordoba, they have this, um, which my hometown, where my family is actually from. Even though I was born in Barcelona, they have this dish which is uh, snails, and it's in like this a broth, which is a mint and garlic broth, and you basically drink the broth, and then you eat the snails, and they set up these little casetas all over the streets for about a two-month period. Everyone goes in, it's like the, And, um, yeah, we used to cook that, and, you know, uh, yeah, so from a very early age, I was eating snails and all sorts of weird, wonderful things. Um, and I think, you know, my my background was originally, you know, young, you know, first migrant um, generation, mum and dad obviously wanted to push me pushed my education so I studied architecture for five years and eventually realized that wasn't really my calling basically I was going to be a crap architect and I was much better at and meanwhile I was still still cooking um in all sorts of little restaurants around Geelong and decided I want to do it professionally but could only really do it well if I did an apprenticeship so went back took a few steps back and um yeah and then worked for the Grossies for a long time um eight on nine eight years or so, so in Italian food, and then thought, well, yes, I can cook Italian food, but I thought that, you know, there was a lot of chefs that could cook Italian food, and that's when I headed back, back home to Spain and um, spent a, a year working over there and then travelling after that and came back and we opened Moveda. You've been an incredible influence
1: on so many, but what do you think has been the main influences
0: in your life for your food? For my food, um, I think uh, people that I really uh, looked up to as a young apprentice were um, Greg Malouf, um, uh, Guy Grossi, Um, people that sort of, you know, were, you know, maybe second-generation migrant, but then took that food that they grew up with and then elevated it in some form, not only the food, but also the experience of, of dining and that cuisine. So for me, those two chefs, you know, knew um, how to you know use only the best ingredients? How to refine something just enough without losing the essence of that particular dish, um, and you know, and just and the most important thing is, you know, are great people as well, and you know, created great teams to work with. So, I think that would you know the influences for my career is people like that. That um, you know, because I think you know, for me, I think if you if you want to be a chef, it has to come from a sense of uh authenticity yeah and authenticity doesn't necessarily mean the the cuisine you grew up with but it might be uh, a style of food that you authentically really love and want to translate um it could be anything from barbecue it could be vegan whatever it is but um and i think that the, the chefs that have that and teach that to the apprentices it's not about for me following what's the next fad um what youtube video you've watched and what technique you've you've pinched out of that it's basically you know where where it comes from you and that's how you create great food i think moving
1: forward you know, had or renowned for certain signature dishes you know, what sort of version are we going to see of movita moving forward will will they reappear or do you think that there'll be a new incarnation of movita moving forward um,
0: there'll certainly be some of the signature dishes that we, we have. Um, I think the anchovy with smoked tomato sorbet is sort of one of those dishes that it's pretty iconic for us. And I think we'd have a, a you know, a disaster if we took it off, but there's other dishes that I'm so over, like, a we, we won a dish in 2005 for a good food guy for the best dish of the year, which is a, a wagyu cured with, with a, uh, potato foam and truffled egg um, it's one of those dishes, yes, loved it the first 50 times I tried it, but about <laughs> after the <laughs> second or third hundredth time, I I can't stand eating it anymore. So I think that might be one that might come off. Although last time we did take it off because we'd ran out of the, um, the cured Wagyu, I think it was a massive uh, backlash. But um, I think people understand now more like the menu is going to have to be limited. Um, you know, we can't, like we always um, have, at every restaurant, you know, six or seven different specials dishes, which are just basically, you know, when we talk to the fishmonger, when we talk to our butcher, when we talk to our uh, veg supplier, what, you know, what they might have that's interesting and which play around with it. But I think those things, when you're limited to 20 people and maybe 20 people outside, um, yeah, have to be sort of, you know, it's, it's just keeping things a bit more constricted and refined. Um, so, you know, things are fresh, basically, which is the most important thing.
1: Identity is a real thing in the industry, and you know, successful restaurants are, um, are down to the identity of the individuals behind them. What's what's maveda done for you? Has it has it changed your life, or has it just been a natural evolution of of what you believed in?
0: Um, oh, it's certainly changed my life. I mean, it's you know, um, it's made allowed me to do a lot of things that I would never have thought you know were possible. You know. Being able to spend um, two months in Barcelona researching a food uh, guide to Barcelona was certainly, you know, pretty amazing and an opportunity I would never have had otherwise. Um, same with the other books, you know, where, uh, with Richard Cornish, who's a co-author, and I um, spent a month researching two different books in Spain, Rustiga and Solera, which serves the south of Spain. Um, so, travelling, meeting amazing people, um, eating incredible food, you know, stealing their recipes and then readjusting them in Australia was, um, you know, things like that. Um, just experiences more than anything else. As Movita's um, been able to give those to me, which, you know, and through probably any other um, career wouldn't have been accessible to me. So, um, and also, like, the you know, my best friends, my, you know, so people I hang out with are people that I have met through MoVita, whether they be business partners, whether they be um, staff, whether they be customers, it's kind of like my world revolves around. So, um, you know, that's important. Um, you know, the, my kids are a little bit young yet to, to work in, in the business, but I'm sure they will eventually, um, you know, and it becomes bigger part of life in general. It's been a pretty life-changing year for
1: most people and particularly those in the hospitality sector. How have you felt
0: personally during this time? Has it, has it changed you? Well, to be honest, like, I, I've probably haven't worked this hard for a good 10 years, <laughs> I reckon. Like, I'm you know, well into my 50s now. I'm just sitting down outside. I've been in the kitchen all day. Feet hurt. Um, you know, but it makes me feel better. It make, Like, to be honest, as far as, like, doing that, it makes me feel like... I'm doing what I do well, Um, you know, because as being, you know, trained as a chef, um, being in the kitchen is what you understand and know. So I feel, like, happier about that than being a little bit distant from it and managing a business, Um, which is important, obviously, but, um, you know, like, it's brought the priorities and everything into a bit more focus and what's important and, you know, um, and the staff and, you know, and dealing with, know their frustrations but sort of also bringing them along and and trying to get them in yeah and they're all all been amazing but trying to get them you know buying into what we're trying to do which is basically come out of this um you know uh when we reopen and then continue on so um yeah it's it's been a bit more a sense of camaraderie and a feeling that probably i haven't had for the last 10 years working in the industry in in the yeah Yeah. because you're sort of separate after a while right like the, you know you don't in the kitchen every day anymore. So you don't have the same connection to all the chefs that I did, you know, 10 years ago. But all of a sudden that's changed now. So I feel, you know, it's like invigorated me as a cook um, but also um, as a as a manager as well. Well, you do have
1: the date set that um, restaurants can open their doors to guests again and it's pushing into yeah. summer at that time as well and hopefully... The restrictions will ease further. How's it
0: going to feel for you when you yeah. um, welcome guests back into the restaurant for the first time? Oh, it's going to be a massive relief. Um, I mean, we've had that experience already once. It feels, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's just a weight off, and it feels like you know we've been dealing with customers, but through this sort of you know virtual way of delivering the food for a logistics company or through our front of house staff, but to seeing actual customers in front of you. I remember that, yeah, when we reopened the first time, it's, you know, just lots of different stories, lots of, you know, how grateful customers are to be back into a restaurant situation and enjoying themselves. And um, it really makes you one you know, understand how vital sort of the restaurants and hospitality in general are for, you know, the common good, I've got to say, like not just for restaurateurs, but for the whole society. Like people really, you know, love their... Their favourite little places, whether it's a pub, whether it's a cafe, or whether it's a restaurant, um, and it's you know intrinsic in their way of life. And, and yeah, you know, when you see people come back, especially regulars, massive smiles on their faces, um, and there's connections there as well. You know, with all the staff, myself, people that have been coming for years that have the same table. I'm at Movida at Key. There's one one customer that has a plaque here for 550 visits. Um, so we're looking forward to welcoming him back as well. Um, you know, so Amazing. obviously, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, apart from, you know, obviously it's progression in keeping the business going, but it's also like a lot of people you haven't seen and you miss and, uh, and the feeling of doing what you do and looking after customers, you know, making something like for me, I was talking before about how, you know, my background was studying architecture and the whole process with architecture is it may take a year or two before you see any feedback or recognition of a project you might do with cooking for me the, you know the beauty of it is that you know you could get a product in that morning you've designed it you've produced it you've created it and you've sold it and you've got the feedback all within you know a day maybe within eight hours and that's a pretty cool feeling right so this is that whole creative process um, you know, it feeds a lot of chefs, and that feedback is really important to it. So yeah, it, it'll yeah, bring back a lot of uh, uh, positivity back into all the all the chefs. Well, Frank,
1: well, it's only uh, a week and a bit away actually before you can swing the doors open again. It's it's not long. So um, good luck. We really loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today. Please keep in touch, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Pleasure. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's hospo community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at podcast, or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.